Hello and welcome to Dynasty As They Wanna Be, a podcast where we drill into every episode of the iconic 1980s television series, Dynasty. I'm your host, Derek J. Lang, and with me is my co-host, Kyler K. Jafari. Hello, hello. Happy holidays. Happy Honda days. <laughs> Joan is all in the news currently. She is the face of uh, Valentino's Christmas campaign. I know we uh, we just watched the commercial and I read there was a story on uh, Vogue.com about it. What did you think of uh, the commercial? But well, let me just explain it for visitors who may not have seen it. I mean, how dare you? But basically, she arrives at a really dull party with like a manservant named Blake and the person who's throwing the parties named Dex. So there's little inside dynasty jokes. And then there's like some champagne references and tea references. And then they start kind of like... I don't know, voguing, and then the party is spicy, I guess. It's it's cute. It's whimsical. What did you Wait, think? Wait, does that qualify as voguing? I don't know. They're sort of posing at the end. It, it was more like, you know, your standard Busby Berkeley lineup with fan dancing or something. I don't know, but um, and maybe I should say it wasn't my cup of tea. Oh, darling, leave the jokes to me. Right, exactly. So I... I, apparently there's some sort of like mini resurgence of Joan Collins like since the Met thing from earlier in the year and Valentino's glomming on to that. Well, I love it. And it just means that we're all the more relevant. You know, we think we're not relatable at all. But here you go. Valentino's using 86 year old Joan Collins as the face of its uh, sexy red Christmas campaign. So I'm all for it. OK, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this is coming off of the her yeah Met Gala appearance where Valentino basically recreated one of the dynasty looks. But let me read you some of this shiz that Miss Call. Do you, but first of all, do you, do you think that was baked in from the beginning, or was that just sort of serendipity? And then they're like, oh, this was such a. A delicious treat that everybody was into. Now we got to sign her on for a campaign. It's hard to say. I mean, they could have mapped it out. Like, first we'll have Joan at the Met Gala in the spring, and then we'll have, you know, her in the summer campaign, and we'll create a very, you know, GIF friendly commercial that can be shared, and it'll be big on social. And okay, boomer, it'll tap into them, and then you know, also the millennials <laughs> will be into it too. I don't. No, but yeah, I mean, you're kind of suggesting that maybe she had this kind of pop at the Met Gala and then they were like, well, we need more Joan, which is funny because it's like it's like the 80s all over again. Like Dynasty was the same way. They were well, like, I, looking to I Joan do like help. that in this in some way, this does implicate her across all party lines like she's young, old in between audiences. She has definitely you know, made this little splash this year. And this, this almost kind of reiterates that on, on the other hand, Valentino is very much your mom's designer brand. So I don't know, but it's, it's all cool with me. It's, it's always fun to get another little taste of what Joan's up to these days. Yeah. Yes, of course we are here for it. So let me read you some of these quotes because some of these have gone a little, uh, viral, but (laughs) Basically, she spends most of the Vogue um, article complaining that people don't dress up anymore. Well, she does give us a little bit of insight into how she thinks that Valentino is uh, modern now. So she does say, um, 
there's um, an outfit that she wore on Dynasty. It's this black, beautiful, shimmery column chiffon dress I brought from one of his costume shows in the 80s. I was talking to Valentino a few years ago before I went to some event, and I said, I don't have anything to wear. But he has this amazing memory and replied, well, darling, why don't you wear that black dress you bought from the costume, the couture show, sorry, in 1989? And I said, oh, my God, you remember that? So that's a fun little like anecdote. I love that Joan and Valentino. You, are just you sounded stabby. a little more like Dame Edna than than Dame Joan. How dare you! You. I, I think I get the gist of it. Other sort of fashion insight. She said, "I think the flam- I think the flamboyance of oversized earrings and ill-fitting skirts might have gone. Skirts never fitted properly in the eighties, by the way, and the huge curly hair might have gone too. But the sleek style I wore a lot in." dynasty the paired back suits with definitive shoulders and small waist and embellishments of color and jewelry i think smart women have been doing that through the decades which i think is true she's not she's not wrong that's that's for sure the real that's yeah that's real talk there but we can't deny that the 80s invented power dressing for especially for women so there's there's those two different facets you have to sort of reconcile with each other I mean, yeah, maybe maybe skirts didn't fit so well. I, I actually don't disagree with her, but they were certainly dramatic. You know, it, it, all the clothes were sort of made for looks, not for not for necessarily comfort or fit. Yeah, I'm going to be paying attention now because we've never really called out the skirts for not fitting, but it, we also don't wear s- skirts well, not all the time. So maybe it's just something we haven't noticed. But if Joan says it, then it is gospel. The other kind of funny thing she said in here at the end was um, she's uh, kind of upset that people don't dress up anymore. And I, I agree with this wholeheartedly. So, um, Okay, boomer. <laughs> I really hope that people will spend more money on clothes because nobody really dresses up anymore. If you do, then people stare at you or make cutting remarks. Well, maybe not cutting, but they'll say something like, Oh, look at you. You're all dressed up. I find that very sad because it will be the end of women buying elegant clothes in stores. Everybody's going to end up in jeans and t-shirts, which I think is tragic. I 100% agree with that because I like to dress up sometimes. And when I do, it's like I put on a clown costume. Well, clearly she hasn't been to L.A. in the last 20 years because jeans and a T-shirt is dressing up these days. Oh, honey. Well, she has a quote about that, too. I don't really fit in with the L.A. lifestyle because everyone's in T-shirts and jeans. And I don't like that look. Oh, and neither does Valentino, by the way. Mr. Valentino is always exquisitely dressed, which I love. Well, I like that she's, you know, such a fashion fascist. I, you know, it, it's part and parcel of her personality as well as Alexis's personality in, in a way. Yeah, and I love that she just feels this passionate about it. This could have been a brand that she moved away from, but she's she's still embracing it. And it seems like she's still maybe not in touch exactly with what's going on, but understands what's going on and wants to sort of bridge the the past and the future together, which I agree with because... 
I don't want to live in a world where everybody's in t-shirts and jeans either. Yeah, to circle back to the what started all of this, the this little divertissement that she created. I like that she walked in on this like group of very young folks drinking tea at a nighttime party and sort of like wondering where the hell's the champagne, you know? And that's sort of another indicator nobody dresses up and like people don't have fun drinking exciting beverages anymore either. Like there is very much a downplaying of you know fancy drinks and certainly alcoholic drinks. Um, not that people, of course, still don't drink plenty, but so I like that that this kind of referenced that as well. Kind of added that in as another layer of of that same idea of of not dressing uh, for the evening. You know. Yeah. Well, things are a spectrum, right? I mean, craft cocktails are booming, but also so is like kombucha and you know almond milk lattes so i don't know there's room for everything but i don't want to just be coloring with one color you know t-shirt and jeans or or tea and coffee like we should be doing it all we should have tea and coffee and valentino and t-shirts and jeans and ball gowns yeah i I think if joan had her way judging on these comments she'd be quite happy if we were just in the roaring 20s and everybody was having an expensive drink and wearing bugle beads and well-educated but partying. So I'm, I, I can't not be on board with that. Totally. Well, I think we have so much to talk about in this week's episode. Let's take a break and get into it. Well, before we even begin, Kyler, as the resident English major on the podcast, do you want to explain what the title of this week's episode is about? No, I really don't. I knew you were going to go straight for it. I mean, here's the deal. My education did not serve me well. And as much as I really enjoy Shakespeare, I never really loved this play. And I think I had to spend a whole week with it. It's Othello, Um, right? Yes, it's Othello. I I never read it either. I just remember filling up blue books full of like long form essay about this this play. I I don't want to disparage it because it's actually a pretty decent play on the surface. But I just I don't know Iago. I mean I believe like this is like some sort of a hammy reference to a character that's in search of revenge, but nobody else really understands what's motivating him, uh, which I took to imply or rather to implicate um, Dr. Nick Toscani because he kind of goes around like stirring the pot with all these characters and pitting them against each other and seeking this revenge against Blake over his brother, but nobody really knows any of that. So it does seem on the surface like what is his big beef with with Blake, you know? Well, can we just Um, get into that? Yeah, I mean, we can, but I I, I would just finish my, my like really terrible adjunct professor explanation of Iago then apparently like you could really look at Blake as the Iago in this because like he's playing this blind character and he's certainly in search of revenge and pitting all these people against. So it's like, I don't know, in some ways, like in what ways is a soap opera just full of people all like playing like little nefarious Iago wannabe characters? Because like, frankly, everybody's like uh, engaging in subterfuge and revenge. uh, And it's certainly in this episode and in the show, of course. So I don't know. I think it's just like this is one of those like I've so departed from 
the the Shapiro's trying to be literary and now it's the Pollock's writing and I think maybe they I don't know if they were trying to do a little literary nonsense there with this Iago reference but I don't even care anymore I'm like watching what's like entertaining and and seeing all the like cheesy plot stuff and the bad acting and and the the crazy clothes so I don't ask me at the end of the day I, I have no real real master's thesis on why they titled it this way yeah i mean i appreciate the fact that they're not just giving away a plot point in the episode title now so that's a move in the right direction but yeah i i don't understand what it is um at all well in in theory if i had paid attention in college i that would have been a total giveaway in the title but anyhow i don't know yeah but i'm (laughs) sure most like housewives in 1982 watching this weren't like astutely familiar with the fellow but i don't know maybe i well shakespeare had like a you know he was sort of the the popular voice of what people thought literature was you know in liberal america of the 70s and 80s so i'm I'm sure iago was like supposed to be a reference that everybody was going to get but i i don't really know somebody would have to tell me well anyway let's cut to the chase blake who's keeping up this ruse of being blind for some reason i don't know confronts dr nick toscani he's figured it out that his half brother hanged himself because he got mixed up with one of Blake's companies in the Mideast. And that was Dr. Nick Toscani's brother's only way out. And Blake just calls him to his office. And, you know, Dr. Nick is busy with Fallon and Crystal, so he doesn't really want to be bothered. But he goes up and, man, he just completely drug him out of the swamp and into the daylight. I couldn't believe that it all came to a head like that easily and also i'm a little disappointed there wasn't more to this revenge plot at least at least we're not seeing it maybe there is more but i don't know i was like shocked and then i was immediately kind of underwhelmed by this revelation yeah i I feel like like the writers woke up at the switch and were like oh my god we've been on like autopilot for two episodes with this you know sort of entertaining but now no longer really plot line and also i do like that blake's blindness sort of is like his actual way of seeing you know like i think i was actually complaining about this in the prior episode where he didn't use that to his advantage enough because that's a you know classic cheesy trick like pretend you're blind and then everybody then you see what they're really doing around you right and he actually kind of does that in this episode so i I guess i got my my comeuppance but um you know this is this is also blake uh he's gonna have his big truth reveal and he's it's this is like sort of like when he does this with the necklace with crystal right uh which leads me to a whole nother thing but i'm trying to stay on topic but so he like he sets up this like crystal you're gonna have lunch with me and she's like oh blake you've you've kicked me out of the bedroom and now you want to have lunch i can't wait you know and then he's he's calling dr nick and he's like i know that there's something that we need to talk about and you need to tell me you know so like he's got everybody's ear and everybody's intrigued and like they don't have any choice but to like meet up with him and he's going to have his big truth reveal with all of these people on the other side is blake's sadism because this is the same thing where he enjoyed making crystal feel like shit about that necklace business but also it's like why does he stay married to her because like so far Crystal's like playing this like Miss Innocent routine, but like let's like look at like real talk. Like 
she's out trading off her necklace for cash to like go give to her like side boyfriend and then like now she's you know doing this like infidelity routine with dr nick and is blake gonna put up with that either i mean like so what does he keep her around for you know it's it's kind of crazy like she actually turns out to be probably as bad as as blake is and maybe in different ways well i think Um, it's about her being the mistress of the house and being prim and proper and there's a lot of stuff we probably don't see with them going to like charity functions and you know she's just great arm candy she's not going to rock the boat like his first wife is constantly doing so i can see why he's interested in her you know beyond the physical but at this point they've been through so much and they've only been married for such to me a short amount of time that it is kind of like dumb that they're staying together and i just i don't know i don't see the chemistry between them i mean that airport scene where she runs off and she's gonna leave which i love because it's like she's tried driving away like what two or three times it's it's no this is a a classic crystal moment she's rented a car she's driven her own car she's (laughs) done all this stuff now she's bought a ticket so she's getting she's actually gonna you know get further this time or this is the furthest she's ever gotten yeah but don't you doesn't this make you wonder like how many decisions were made by poorer people that couldn't afford to waste plane tickets and rental cars having these love tantrums (laughs) you know like this is like she's so like she's like i'll just put it on the diners club look i'll I'll just be self-indulgent for another round of this next time and like you know but yeah like she she totally is gonna is she finally gonna gtfo right and she, and she just can't do it she never can no well they are used to flying private so maybe they just don't understand how the whole thing works i mean i thought it was so funny at the airport blake Stand sends by. joseph <laughs> off to be like hold the plane i mean obviously it was a different time but it's just so funny that blake thinks joseph can just stop the plane from going off because mrs carrington needs to have a chat with her blind husband but yeah she can't get away and you know what what were the music was swelling were we supposed to be shocked when she came back into the airport from the tarmac and didn't end up getting on the plane no nobody was shocked and actually they would have been they would have been pissed off and throwing things at the tv if if it didn't happen like at this point we want what we want and that's what crystal's delivering here and I, I like that they, you know, because it's an airport, now they're like Blake and Crystal are doing this reverse Casablanca routine, you know, it's like <laughs> he's got to put her on, he's got to put her on the plane, but like they're going to actually try to save the relationship, right? Um, so yeah, with the swelling music and, you know, we never really say enough about how great the music package is in this season, but this is, you know, another example. And I and I hate that how it, it all plays together. It's actually the best scene of the episode. And of course, you know, the writers are at least obvious enough to put it at the end but like there's there's so much to enjoy about this the scene and yet like i'm tired of this whole you know conceit of crystal gonna finally get the hell out and she never does well i did like that she did seem to finally put a nail in this whole dr nick toscani coffin and i think he got the memo because then of course he moves on to fallon 
And I think more than Blake, I think it was Alexis that was driving Crystal to go get on that plane. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, well, this is why I was like, oh, maybe it's going to finally happen. But but just to wrap up this scene, though, she does like she kind of goes into this thing about like, I'm going back to Ohio where people are just as they are. They're not wearing faces, you know. At least you can tell me where you're going. Back where I came from. To Ohio? Yes. Back to where people are just what they are, not wearing a dozen faces. But you've got no one back there. You've got no family, no... I have friends, Blake. People I went to school with. Common people, as Alexis would say, but wonderful people. Friends. Yes, but your home is here. Alexis has got nothing to do with that. Doesn't she? No. Well, tell her. And while you're at it, tell her she can have that divorce she's always wanted for you. And she can have you and your world. As we knew from the very beginning, Crystal can't handle the life. You know, the life at, at the Carrington Mansion is just too much for her. And um, that's why it's like you just keep waiting for her to, like, bail. And you really think this is going to be it, but it's not. But, yes, like, Alexis totally incites this, right? It starts from the beginning when she shows up in Blake's office with the handkerchief and leaves it in the chair um which of course crystal discovers toward the end of the episode when she goes to see blake in his office and you know and and then they get in their little cat fight you know their verbal cat fight we don't get a real one yet i know i was waiting i thought oh maybe there's gonna be a slap or some kind of physical touching happening here because it was so contentious you know we've had a few scenes of them kind of come for each other and this i think is the closest they got to to blows but no, Alexis still sort of had the upper hand. It's, it's a nice it's a nice little bit of like Alexis like, you know, just being like a wind-up artist. Like she's first she she turns the portrait yeah, around. I was going to say Blake. what do you mean a wind-up like yeah. she literally wound up a portrait of Blake? <laughs> no, like she's like she's like, you know, trolling Crystal. Like she's trying to wind her up. Like she she like and then like obviously it works because every time she does one of these little moves in this conversation where like Crystal like returning the handkerchief to Blake or to Alexis you know Alexis is doing these little things during the conversation that just like keep setting her off well I do have Um, to wonder if she had just been sitting there for hours standing there excuse me for hours and hours waiting for Crystal to come confront her so she could dramatically turn the portrait around the easel and show her that she was painting Blake because it was just so goddamn serendipitous i i think she probably was because this this is all part of like all of her evil mouse trap that she's always setting and i wouldn't be a bit surprised to find your fine artistic hands behind that letter some ghoul wrote my husband about me letter what letter i don't know what you're talking about oh you know what i'm talking about alexis what was it you said to me about blake and you two people meant to be together Yes. Yeah, she's not not even pretending. It's very Trumpian the the way that Alexis just kind of changes the facts of everything, and she just lives in her own truth. Yeah, and and it's and that's why like she for real sets Crystal off to like leave for Dayton this time, and that's that's why I thought "Mm, maybe this this time it'll be different. Well, that letter is really going to get her in a lot of trouble because Fallon is, as we suspected, having major regrets about getting involved in it and you're you're you were right i mean you've seen these episodes so you know but fallon 
Fallon, I don't think is fit to operate on the same level as her mother in, in at least in these kind of nefarious ways, because she was like beside herself and she's like, we have to reveal and tell all and Alexis has to talk her off the ledge. Yeah. And even here she's having to talk her off the ledge because she's like, you don't need to go to Blake and tell him that we wrote this letter. And and she's even like gaslighting her. She's just like, you're um, disoriented thinking. You know? <laughs> right. She starts blaming her for the, the crazy pregnant woman. <laughs> right. So, yeah, like clearly Fallon can't play on this level. But also Fallon's loyalties are still ultimately to her father, Blake. Right. So, so it's it's still going to be, be this push and pull between her and her mother where I don't think her mother's ever going to quite win her over. So what is going on with Dr. Nick coming for? the Carrington women because Crystal dumps his ass again and then he you know tries to light the fire back up with Fallon which (laughs) I guess this episode is all supposed to take place in one day so in the morning he kind of dumps her and says get out of here and this isn't going to happen and then like later that afternoon they're smooching and he's telling her to have her baby and divorce her husband and they're going to be together so i have to think he's just shifting his plan now that this whole thing with crystal didn't work out unless he really did love her but i never bought that he loved her so i mean i barely buy the fact that Blake I, i'm crystal. in yeah so. i'm in total agreement with that one i i think he's just looking for an inroad and crystal was the the best way to get there because that's going to get straight to blake but I think Fallon is like a very close second option. Um, And so that's the direction he's going. You know, he's he's just going to throw things at the wall to see what sticks. And he's going to get his revenge somehow here. But he's not as uh, dialed in as strategic, you know, as like, say, Alexis is on on these things. He's still not getting results. Um, And at the end of the day, he's got like Fallon, who's got to first get a divorce and have a baby before anything else can really start up with that plot line so he didn't really you know the 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 grand prize would have been crystal on on that front well speaking of babies blake wants to adopt jeff colby wt fuck i don't get that at all is that how desperate he is for a child that he wants to adopt a grown ass man? I have to question like Blake's judgment there because like normally I feel like he does these things out of like Machiavellian strategic, you know, sadistic torture, you know, but here it's like I don't know if he's just literally lacking for a son to inherit, you know, the throne and that's really what this is all about. I I feel like that's just too easy, but I don't know. This the writing can be very lazy sometimes, so maybe. But I'm just thinking, what about Jeff? Like how could Jeff sign on for that? And rightfully he does not because could you imagine being in this house divorced from uh Fallon who's the daughter of blake but he's now the son of blake like by adoption like how would that even work i don't understand why he's even still in the house he seems so miserable there except when he's like saving blake carrington's life so but otherwise as soon as he's not in blake's companionship it's like torture town well and then the other piece of that would be like what if fallon ends up at the you know toward the end of this episode there she's making this this reconciliation or sort of with Dr. Nick, right? What if they ended up married after all of this, but then Jeff's got the kid 
and they're all living under one roof and working for Blake. Like it's trashy. <laughs> that just <laughs> it is. I was just gonna say, like at some point, it goes from being like you know, sort of patrician drama to just pure trashy. (laughs) Well, you know what else is trashy? I mean, there's so many, but you tell me. The Carrington Mansion gem? Oh, well, but they tried to not make it trashy because it's the same paneling as the library. (laughs) It's obviously (laughs) the same set as the library. They did a terrible (laughs) attempt. I mean, this was way worse than redressing the St. Dennis Club as... The fur or furrier shop, and and I want to say this this gymnasium shows up like a few more times in the next couple of seasons. Ugh, so my this eyes. wasn't just a one and done. <laughs> that gym was wild. They had weights machines. Then they had a trampoline. They had like <laughs> these little itty bitty white free weights. And then the weirdest thing of all, did you notice? There's like one of those fat farms. Steam steamers. At least I think that's what it is. Where you stick your no, body no, no. In I think what you're talking about, it was that yeah, and it's like the the belt that like it's like an orbital belt that's supposed to shake the fat away. Oh no, no, no. Whatever. I mean, maybe there was one of those. I mean, the thing where you there stick your was. head out of it. And then it steams on the inside and you're... Oh, yes. They did have like like an egg. Yeah. Like a, yeah. It looks like a submarine from like egg, a James Bond humans. movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they had like these like, you know, these like 1940s like, you know, <laughs> exercise relics. Right. And then they just like propped up some yoga mats along the fireplace. So like, you know, you don't see that this is actually the library. Nothing to see here. Ha ha ha. But yeah, they spend their time in the gym talking more about Sammy Joe than actually pumping iron. Alexis is going to do everything in her power to split them up. And now she's telling Steven straight to his face. You know, she's told Blake, she's told Crystal. And, um, you know, I think I think that run in at the fur shop uh, sent her over the edge. So she's not going to put up with that trashy little tramp anymore. That's like telling a rattlesnake to forget how to strike. And look, you pass the word on to your little wife, Stephen. If I ever hear another time that she has breathed a word about Fallon's paternity, I will personally attach tiny hand grenades to each of the wheels on her roller skates, watch her do one of her ever-loving pirouettes, and applaud as she explodes into a thousand smithereens. Understood. Well, I think unfortunately Alexis might be the you know the bitch that cried wolf because nobody else is really listening. They don't care. Sammy Joe can apparently just run free with this letter of credit and drop the Carrington name and have jaguars and fur coats. And Blake doesn't seem to really care. Crystal thinks it's kind of amusing just because it's pissing off Alexis. Um, you know, and and of course. Uh, now that Steven's like no longer a homosexual, but married to, to Sammy Joe, like he doesn't want to hear any of it. So, you know, like poor Alexis, I feel bad for her because like the one time she tells the truth, nobody's going to believe her. The other truth bomb that's kind of being bandied about is Cecil Colby says he has finally figured out where Lindsay is as he uh, tells Claudia Blaisdell over lunch at the, you guessed it, St. Dennis Club. <laughs> I like that Claudia Blaisdell is just, she's having a Bloody Mary at lunch, you know? I always thought it was a brunch drink, but no. You have an hour-long break from Denver Oh, no. Have a no, bloody. no, no, no. Yeah, no, the, the Bloody Mary's, a, a, that's an original drink for, you know, all day. 
um, especially in, you know, white suburban America. Yeah, so, I mean, that's going to get you through the afternoon when you go back to your office at Denver Carrington. I, re- I really do wish we drank as much as we used to. <laughs> Well, I also wish we had corporate corporate espionage as well. This this is crazy. I'm like so into this storyline and I'm like so pissed that we're only getting like one scene an episode. He hands her a little miniature camera. It's very easy to use, he says, and he wants her to take pictures of these freaking oil shale files. I'm like here for this. Yeah, and basically he's just engaging in a, like emotional extortion with her. He's like, if you want to really know where your daughter is, you know, you're going to do this for me. And what is it, Claudia? Don't you really want her back? Of course I want her back. You know there isn't anything I wouldn't do to get her. But I'm not going to turn into a thief for it. This is like you know, this is a nice little bit of like '80s power moves, right? Like business being conducted on the sly and you know not very good motivations behind it all and it's interesting that she gets up to leave because she's going to have this like moment of integrity like i'm not going to be a thief for you um and he's like oh just forget it all you know forget all about it we've already ordered lunch and you know yeah it's like alexis a few episodes ago and she was like don't worry about it we'll have champagne Cecil Colby's yeah, like, we'll talk don't about this worry later. about it. We'll have salmon tartar. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I actually like that they, they limit the scope of this plot line because it, in a way, it kind of benefits from what you want it to be versus, you know, if they had had like really fleshed it out. I don't know how much more they could have done with this because like Lindsay and Matthew are clearly written off the show at this point. Um, or at least for right now. And what what else is Claudia going to do? Well, we you know? do. So get, I, I like that. Well, I love Claudia, so I could just see her putting some files away or looking through some microfiche, and I'd be happy with that. A little less of J- Jeff tromping around, salivating over his daddy, Blake Carrington. But no, if we we do get confirmation in this episode that Claudia doesn't care about Lindsay anymore because she stands up for her integrity and instead of figuring out where her daughter is, she's like, no, I'm not going to spy on uh, Denver Carrington and take pictures oh, of the come on. This, files. No, 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 no. This is, this is like classic, like Sophie's choice. Like, you know, she has to choose her own integrity over her daughter on this one, which I mean, I don't know if it weren't like an eighties soap opera, I would say that's the right choice. Like that's, that's the moral, ethical logical are you fucking kidding me i want all the mothers out there that listen to our our podcast to write in tweet us if you're a mother you would do anything in your power to get your daughter back including taking pictures of some damn rocks and some job you've only had for a few weeks i mean if they're just damn rocks but we all know that they're not and this is this is like ftc insider trading and like not not to mention her own personal you know obligation to blake and to cecil in a strange way i mean it's uh we we all know like nothing good comes from her doing that so i i i kind of agree with her decision on this one Ugh, you're such a baby no because if she's smart she finds another angle on this one and she gets her you know her Lindsay uh you know, fulfillment in some other way, or I don't know, but it's, I don't know. Look, this is we're we're in the land of fan fiction at this point. I mean, okay, boomer. 
Now it's time for the part of the episode where Kyler and I pick our lurks of the week. I thought we had a lot of, well, not a lot, but I thought there were definitely options. What did you pick? I'm going to go for the obvious, which is um, Alexis's daytime look in Blake's office. It's it's the classic box cut, almost Chanel inspired uh, black and white suit with the, uh, you know, the jabot. Uh, which is in you know some sort of white chiffon sort of material, and you know she's the makeup and hair are on point. The jewelry is is there. It's like kind of what she was talking about, you know, like dressing up and wearing jewelry and looking glamorous. And this is just very classic. Um, I, there is a sort of a side look with um with uh, Crystal, and normally I don't think this, but for some reason her makeup was like really on point in the dining room with Blake during lunch. And I don't know if that's just, I, th- I think it's something to do with the color of the walls against not only the color of what she's wearing, which is this bright red, which we've already established as like 80s power dressing color number two behind black. But something about all that brings out like her, her makeup in a way. And it's not like her makeup looks that different. It just looks like on point and her hair is like the way it usually is. But Well, and that I, blue just, uh, wallpaper paint or whatever brings out Linda Evans's baby blues as well. They just sparkle. Sure. And, and I think that's kind of what I'm wondering is like, did the set dressing actually inform, you know, the, the actress dressing? I if, Maybe, but... Anyway, like two two very strong and sharp and power dressing moments uh, in this show. Well, you'll never believe it. I didn't choose either. My look of the week, it was a very short scene, but it's before she goes to the airport. Crystal has a little moment with Jeanette, the maid, which, man, that Jeanette, she is just so emotionally invested in this family. And it's like, it's like, lady, you're the maid. Like, what do you care so much? But anyway, she's wearing this flowy blouse that's got this crazy sort of shoulder detail that goes over like almost the side of her shoulder because at some point she kind of sweeps it around it's like a scarf built into the blouse and then it's got like a houndstooth pattern underneath and then there's like a gold uh, detail along the side and then she's paired it with you know a high-waisted beige sort of pant and then when she goes to the airport she puts a cape on top of it and looks fabulous which did you notice the cape had the same gold edging as the uh, built-in scarf on the blouse i did i did you know everything's gotta be matchy matchy with these ladies or at least as close as the costume designers can match yeah and if it's not matchy matchy it's certainly uh (laughs) samey samey and yeah i think this was a three-peat for sure we've definitely uh, noted that blouse a couple of episodes ago and uh and i would just point out again that that's not just a pattern that's printed that's actually embossed into the weave of the cloth and the so you only really see it as the light shimmers against it well i loved it it was making me sweat more than stephen carrington in the gym but could you imagine like getting off the airplane in dayton ohio in that like it it kind of like belies the whole point she was trying to make as she was leaving that you know people wearing faces and not being the common folks and it's like but wait you're gonna you're gonna walk the tarmac in that in cleveland ohio i mean that's you know well darling what did you want her to wear t-shirt and jeans Ugh. 
Well, we've mined another episode of Dynasty for all it's worth. I have to say, I'm I'm really feeling everything. Like I'm not bored at all in in these episodes. Like everybody is giving me something. We didn't have Sammy Joe in this episode. I didn't miss her, but her presence was still kind of there as um Stephen Carrington defended her honor, even though Heather Locklear wasn't called to set this week. Maybe all those little tiny grenades went off on her roller skate wheels. <laughs> well, if you don't want us to make all of those tiny grenades go off on your roller skates, you should leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, anywhere you can leave reviews. And make sure you follow us on social media. We're at Nasty Podcast. That's N-A-S-T-Y Podcast. Um, if you don't know... If you're new to this show, Dynasty is like a sports term now, so we're just nasty because, you know, that's what we are and that's what we love about this show. So follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all the places. Until next week, this has been Dynasty As They Want To Be. Bye-bye, Boomer. Boomer.